This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello, welcome back to Fintech Takes. Uh, My name is Alex Johnson, and I am delighted to bring another edition of a very fun concept that I... uh, was able to dream up and um, get some uh, some great support on called Not Fintech Investment Advice. So we're going to do this one again. And to help me do it again, I have uh, managed to convince the great and powerful author of the Fintech Brain Food newsletter, Simon Taylor, to come back on and join. Simon, thanks for being back. Thanks for calling me great and powerful. I'm so here for that. Like You are just way too kind, sir. How are you doing? I am doing well. Everything is good. The cold snap in Montana is over. So like it's sort of feeling like spring, which is to say that there's still several feet of snow on the ground, but it's more (laughs) in the like 35 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, sunny, you can go outside for a walk. So it's going well. How are you? So that's like the fintech market then, you know, it's kind of like (laughs) there's still a lot of snow around. It's still cold as all heck, but you know, we're we're making it. We're getting there. Oh man, I'm grateful. I'm blessed. I get to read about fintech as part of my job and do this stuff. I I just, you know, I'm a nerd. I will freely put my hand up and say, (laughs) I'm a nerd and getting to do this conversation is a joy and getting to learn about fintech companies is too. It is. It really is. And I, I, as a reminder for the listeners, what we're going to do for this podcast, like we did the last time we did this, is Simon and I have each selected uh, two fintech companies out of the myriad of fintech companies out there that are interesting and brought two to the table each to talk about. We haven't shared those with each other beforehand. So we're going to sort of surprise each other with these and talk about some of the sort of maybe larger trends that uh, sit behind these companies and why we think they're interesting. And then at the very end of the podcast, we're going to do a little wish casting and try to project into the universe some things we'd like to see in the fintech space. These very well may be things people are already building or have built and we just don't know about them. Maybe they're sort of new ideas. Maybe they're ideas that are bad and won't work for some reason, but just things we want to sort of toss out there into the universe. Before we do that, Simon, would you like to warn our listeners that this really truly is not fintech investment advice? Oh, no, it completely is. You should bet. No, don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't bet everything you own on this, please. Um, but you know what? Like, if you learn something from it and you did do something wrong, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to come after you with lawyers or anything like that. That's just not my style. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, I'm. Uh, this is two guys' opinions. And uh, if you learn something from it, that's amazing. Okay, awesome. Well, with that disclaimer out of the way, uh, Simon, as the guest, I would love it if you would go first. Uh, give us one of your fintech companies. The first fintech company I had is called Noble. Uh Noble does credit workflow orchestration. Mm -hmm. So if you are trying to build any credit program, then you can use their API or their no-code solution to build things like a buy now, pay later program or a credit card program or a charge card or cash advances or even something more complex that mixes all of those up. And frankly, doing that is going to require lots of data sources. You're going to need a KYC thing, and you're going to need to plug that into your transaction monitoring thing, and you're going to need to plug that into your underwriting thing. That's just hard. So this becomes like the no-code workflow tool for all credit processes, especially if credit is not your core business. So I like this. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting because the market has swung towards credit in the past 12 months. We did debit cards. Everything was a debit card for a while. We had 
payments automation for CFOs. So I run a small company, moving money in and out way too hard through too many payment systems. Here's a workflow tool that manages all of that for me. Mm -hmm. Now, if everybody's building a credit program, wouldn't they want a workflow tool too? Yeah, I think they will. So this just felt directionally really interesting to me. But uh, yeah, there's a lot going on here. A lot going on. What are your thoughts on it? Well, this is, um, I think we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, Simon, but like most of the things in fintech are like, oh, wow, this is really interesting to me. I'm going to try to learn as much about it as I can, maybe write about it in the newsletter. But like deep in your bones, you're like, I'm an amateur as it relates to this topic because we have to cover uh-huh. a wide range of stuff in fintech. And I feel like most of the time we're sort of skating over, you know, ice where there's a big pond underneath where it's like, wow, that's a lot of stuff I don't know. And I haven't swum in that world before. This is one I actually have because my first job in fintech was actually working for a company that did credit underwriting no-code workflow tools. So I love this particular area. I have looked at Noble before, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that directionally, this is a good growth area and the area that fintech is going to go into. And I think something that folks probably underestimate is the workflows for credit are just sort of fundamentally different, right? To your point, I mean, when you're, the difference between opening up a banking account and opening up a loan, even though fundamentally, there's still a lot of the same steps in terms of filling out an application, getting data on the customer, doing KYC, credit comes with a lot more work, right? Generally speaking, and I'll be very curious to see who Noble sells to, and maybe that's kind of an open question that I have, but like, if you're a bank, as an example, you have whole teams of underwriters, right? That sit in front of a computer every day, and they They work stipulations for credit applications where there's some additional work that needs to happen, right? And that's just not something that really happens in a lot of other areas of financial services, largely because, you know, if you're opening like a checking account for a customer, it's not really worth it from a profitability perspective to spend human cycles underwriting that application or looking into it, right? But when you're doing lending, because there's a bigger margin there, it is worth doing that. And so, you know, what I find interesting about the sort of no code workflow orchestration automation thing when as it relates to credit is you have to be really smart about blending together automated workflows and data-driven decisions, which obviously is the kind of the core of what you'd want to do in a sort of modern financial services sense, with manual underwriting and sort of input from human beings. And I, I'll tell you just one quick story that I, I heard recently from a bank that I thought was interesting, just to illustrate this. And this is a really good example for fintech companies that want to serve underbanked or unbanked consumers. So this was a bank that was working with lower FICO customers, uh, generally consumers that don't have sort of steady salary nine to five jobs. And um, someone filled out an application for an auto loan and they um, ended up getting uh, put in a stipulation because some of the data in the application didn't make sense. And so the underwriter was going through the application and looking at everything and very quickly realized that the problem was that when they asked for annual income, the consumer put zero in for annual income. And you'd think like, oh, is that fraud or like some kind of weird like oversight or whatever? But the underwriter who deals with this population of consumers every day knew exactly what had happened, which was the person read it and thought, well, I don't get paid yearly. I don't get paid annually. I get paid hourly. And so the wow. application turned out to not be asking the right question for that customer, right? And so it, it was a really interesting example when I heard this of there's knowledge about 
the sort of quirks of underwriting loans specifically that's built up in like underwriters' heads that's very specific to customer segments, product types. And so I'll be very curious in the case of uh, Noble to sort of see how their platform gets built out to support some of these sort of unique circumstances, because it's not something where generally you can automate 100% and be happy. You want to automate 90, 95%, but you want to leave room for that human intelligence as well. So I don't know, I'll be curious to see how that shakes out and what part of the market they go after, because fintechs and banks tend to think about this a little bit differently. And you think regulation and just payments is hard, <laughs> like regulation and compliance in lending is a whole other ball game of complexity and gnarly stuff, mm-hmm. which sort of says there's, I don't know, maybe there's an opportunity there for somebody to abstract that complexity and turn it into a workflow tool. I would imagine, and based on their API docs, they've got some underlying partnerships with some lenders, with some other folks. They're also speaking about KYB policies on their website. So they're looking at business lending solutions. I sort of see it a little bit like Stripe Capital, Mm. but for anybody else, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like if I'm a marketplace or I'm an e-commerce site, or even if I'm a a digital bank or a fintech, I could use Stripe Capital as a nice, simple way to manage a credit program. It's going to be limited in what it can do. It might not handle some of those edge cases you were talking about. Mm -hmm but it might get me to market and give me a revenue stream that I didn't have before. So sometimes 95% of the use cases are all right to get you started and then you can start to figure that out. That's kind of what I thought when I looked at it. Yeah, but you know, yeah. sometimes product is about what you don't do. Well, so that's a great point too, right? Because the other thing that you find, I think everywhere when you do fintech infrastructure, but maybe lending's the best example of this is um, you'll go, you know, okay, so what do you want? And the client that you're selling it to, a fintech or a bank, will go, well, what do you do? And you'll go, anything you want. And they'll go, but yeah, but what do you do? And like, you end up in this weird thing where like, you're trying to configure the solution, but the client <laughs> is looking for best practices on how to get started. And so like, you're, I think your example about Stripe Capital is a really good one, right? Like, that's like, we want to do lending. We want to push a button and turn it on and make it like yes. really, really easy to do without having to think through a lot of this stuff. Most, I think, and I, I'm guessing that Noble's probably starting here, start in the perspective of we want to be flexible, we want to build like a tool that can handle any type of like uh, logic that you want to build into it, however you want to underwrite loans for whatever type of lending category, like go for it. And, you know, I think what you end up sort of struggling with is this balance between do you want to sell a great tool to someone who knows exactly what they want? and have all of their policy and rules and models all built out, and they're just looking for the best possible tool to drop those in. And that's usually the bigger banks, the more mature sort of fintech companies. And of course, the challenge with selling to them is they're very picky buyers and they like the technology they have. Maybe they built some of it themselves. Like That's a hard sale and it takes a while. Or the alternative is selling it to smaller fintech companies that are newer to lending, smaller banks or credit unions. And there's a much bigger pool of those companies to sell to. They tend to be much less discerning buyers, but they also don't quite know exactly what they need. And so you do have to package in more of that like IP and you have to be a little more prescriptive in what you build into your product and what you offer them in order to get them to market because you'll just go around and around the circle going, well, what do you have? Well, what do you want? So you can't do that with that segment of the market. So again, it kind of comes back to like, who do you want to start to sell this to? And like, what is the nature of that sale going to look like? Yeah. And if I was just going to guess, I'd say that there's a lot of mid-market, not yet massive 
fintech companies that are trying to pivot to lending, especially consumer and B2B fintech companies. If you're in the top five in your category, you're probably going to do okay, even in this sort of fintech winter. Mm -hmm. But if you're another fintech company, you've been around for four or five years, you've got a lot of users and bad unit economics. How do you pivot to lending? And somebody coming along with, here's one we made earlier, you push this button and you turn on revenue and we've got a bank sitting behind it that'll help us underwrite it all if you only do these things within this window. Mm -hmm. I could see that being a compelling sale, mm -hmm. but like, who knows? You know, I'm just a British guy with an opinion. <laughs> well, I'm just an American guy with a less cool accent who also has an opinion. So um, <laughs> that is totally fair. Should we jump to the next one? Let's do it. I'm curious. What, what have you got for me here? Like, what have you got? All right. So first one for you, Mr. Taylor, is uh, a company called Clear, and it's actually spelled C-L-Y-R. So C-L-Y-R. And... Not a company that I had heard of before, but they do expense management. So similar to a ramp or a Brex or an Airbase or, um, you know, uh, Navon, now that they've pivoted from uh, just being about travel to uh, being about expense reports, expense management is the category that we're talking about. And in particular, Clear is specializing in expense management for field service businesses. So this is the plumber that comes to your house or the roofer that comes to your house or the the person who comes to your house to install solar panels or, you know, whatever the case may be. So people who go out into the field and do some type of service work, obviously a very large industry, lots of very small to medium sized businesses that play in that space. What's interesting to me about Clear is that they have a intentionally very different strategy from seemingly almost everyone else I've seen in the expense management space. They do not offer a card. So there's no charge card, there's no credit card, there's no debit card that they offer here. They are not making money from interchange. They charge a SaaS subscription fee. Shocking, I know. And the reason that they do that, the reason they specifically sort of steered around offering their own card was this insight that they had into the nature of small field service businesses that have, say, a dozen, couple dozen employees the owners of those businesses, the executives of those businesses, they really like accruing all of the rewards from the cards that are used by their employees. Okay. And so they like their own existing credit cards. You know, so this is like a partner at a law firm who hasn't had to fly on his own dime for the last 10 years because he has a ton of airline miles because the credit card that they have that they give to all of their employees, they're already using, they already like, and they've already accrued a tremendous amount of benefits. So they're looking for better expense management software that can integrate with all the systems they use, that can tie into the card accounts that they have, but they don't want to replace those cards. So a card agnostic expense management platform for this segment of the market has a tremendous amount of value. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it is. You'll remember Expensify. I was speaking to the CEO of a fintech company about a week ago, who shall remain nameless. You know, I'm not going to diss the goss on them because I didn't get their permission and I'm just a nice guy. But they were saying that uh, I think they were a customer of either Ramp or Brex or one of those guys, but they, the CEO, refused to use it because they wanted to use their Amex everywhere. Yes. And they were still using Expensify. And I'm like, wait, so you will go through the pain of like, okay, Expensify is not that bad these days, but 
back when I first used it, it was kind of brutal. But you'll go through that additional pain just to get those points. And yeah, there's a lot of people for whom that's true. But also, there's, frankly, the ramps, the brexes of the world are not exactly courting the person that shows up to do your roof. That's right. They're courting that growth business, that next level up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like that's who they want. That's their, their ideal customer is bigger and more complex. Mm-hmm. So having something where it solves this like edge case problem or seemingly edge case problem, but really, really well is a price worth paying for people who frankly have to deal with a lot of invoices, a lot of expenses, cash flow issues. Like it's it's hard running a small business. It really, really is. Mm-hmm. So the SaaS fee just is a nice business model twist that I haven't seen anybody focus on and kind of go into. The beautiful thing I think about the modern expenses tools is just how well they work. You know, my favorite product saying is, um, you can tell a lot of effort went into making this feel effortless. And I just have a crush on products that do that so, so well. Doing that, but for this segment, was a gap in the market. And maybe their revenue model takes them there. But do you think, is it the opposite of the case? Is this just a nice little business or is this a venture-backed business? Like, does this grow or is it like Expensify? It's just kind of there. Yeah, I think Sorry, Expensify, but you are. No, I think that's a fair question, right? I mean, it kind of, the, the interesting thing it sort of reminds me of is um, Brex getting out of the business of serving small businesses generically, right? So that they made that decision, what, like a year ago to um, basically pull back from anything that wasn't their core focus, which is venture-backed businesses. And I thought that was really interesting, right? Because they ended up having to, unfortunately, sort of offboard quite a few small businesses off of their platform that didn't meet that somewhat sort of nebulous requirement. And when that happened, I was just like, huh, I guess there is a lot of businesses that wouldn't fit that profile, but would need better expense management tools. And it it kind of reminds me of, you know, like Intuit and QuickBooks, right? Like there's just a massive long tail of businesses out there. And, you know, my my theory, and I, I might be wrong about this, is that um, when we talk about venture-backed businesses in fintech, I think sometimes we confuse venture-backed businesses by which we mean, wow, that's a huge addressable market with a you know solid product that can add value for the vast majority of companies in that space. And they have the potential to seize a large part of this large market. And uh, the other definition of venture-backed businesses, which is, wow, this is a solution that can do really well among the types of flashy businesses that VCs understand and appreciate and have a sort of direct feel for, right? And so, Mm. you know, not to criticize Brex, because I think Brex has built really good products. And I've heard really, really good things actually about their expense management software recently. But I do find the focus on just venture-backed businesses to be a little bit strange, right? Because venture-backed businesses fail a lot, maybe not quite at the ratio that just your average small business fails, but they fail. You know, Stripe, as an example of a company that sort of started by serving venture-backed businesses, all they're talking about these days is enterprise companies, right? And working with the Fords of the world and trying to sort of grow out of these venture-backed businesses where they started with Y Combinator. So I think maybe we have a bit of a an unconscious bias in fintech around assuming that venture-backed businesses means going after markets that we in the sort of tech VC community 
understand and know really well, as opposed to maybe this large sort of untapped segment of service businesses out there that strictly from like a size of market TAM perspective, I mean, it's probably massive. I haven't looked at the numbers, but like there's a lot of these little roofing businesses out there. Now, to your point, I do think customer acquisition is hard, right? Like there's a reason that Intuit and QuickBooks tend to hoover up a lot of these companies. They're really well known and they have big marketing budgets and they've been around for a while. And so I do think that the question of how do you go out and acquire all of these companies and how do you do that efficiently and how do you deal with the fact that a lot of them are going to churn because they go out of business or whatever, like that's a challenge. And I definitely buy that. But size of market, I think it's pretty big. Yeah, growth speed matters. I think if you have VCs on your board and they understand that if you can get other growth companies, you'll grow with them and you just need a few to, to really bootstrap your way to growth. But it, yeah, I like the Stripe example because Agin versus Stripe. Stripe starts at enterprise and comes from the top of the market down. Stripe starts at the long tail and then tries to get up to enterprise. If you make it, you eventually end up trying to do both and you get to a certain scale. Mm-hmm. But there are all those segments of the market where NetSuite plays mm-hmm. versus Intuit. You know, you graduate out of QuickBooks and then you get this other accounting software called NetSuite because you need something more grown up. And then eventually you might even graduate out of that and stick in SAP HANA or, or something along those lines and just like a really, really big system. So the bigger a company is, the more complex its needs. The smaller a company is, the more underserved its needs are. Can you market to them? I still buy that this is a great business. Absolutely. The customer acquisition cost and the unit economics would be my question. But I sort of weirdly like the name and the feel of it. I just hope their product is really, really great Mm -hmm. and they can get a traction flywheel because it's too hard to operate a small business. It should be easier and it should be a great business to solve that problem. And that's a lot of the word it should. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But, it, but it, yeah, it's just directionally like go solve that. Yeah, it's a, and to your point, it's a tough market to win in. I think that your point about the product is such a good one, right? Because I think the best growth engine working with these smaller businesses is word of mouth and referrals, right? I mean, like, you know, people who own roofing companies know people who own solar companies and like on and on and on and on. And so you want your product to be somewhat viral within all of these little service business communities. And I think that if you build a product that really is 10x what else is out there, and I don't know that there are a lot of like great expense management businesses being built to serve this segment. So it certainly could be a 10x improvement. I think that dramatically accelerates your ability to reach these customers. Whereas if it's not, you're always going to be spending money to get customers. And that's just a tough place to live when you don't have a lot of margin to begin with. So I think that's a great call out. Do you want to do your next one? Let's do it. Okay. All right. Um, this one is uh, Keezy. It's hard to say, but I'll try and spell it. It is K-E-Y-Z-Y, so Keezy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a rent-to-own platform in the United Kingdom. And the reason I liked it is they had a model I haven't seen before, which is they acquire properties on behalf of their customers and then rent them back to the customer for a period of between three and seven years. Mm. At the end of the term, the renter can buy the house at today's price and then pays a fixed rent for the duration. The renter potentially keeps price appreciation if there is any, mm-hmm. and the user journey requires the application to so the applicant to select an available home, connect via open banking, then move in. 
Interesting. And I just thought, that's really slick. So you're starting at which home do you want? Mm -hmm. Then you're doing the like, okay, connect your open banking. And then you're sort of moving it. <sighs> okay, it's going to be a little bit more complex under the hood. But I really just thought this is how rent to own should work, shouldn't it? Now, then you think about it from Keezy's perspective. A real risk there that like, well, what if they end up with a load of houses that they can't sell and mortgages end up depreciating? Well, the way the business model works is renters pay a one-off upfront £2,000 fee, which is about $2,500. So if they can get to, you know, a a thousand customers a month, that's like $2.5 million of MRR per month like they're really just trying to get people in and starting to build ownership so there's a decent income stream you could imagine there if that's possible but the other thing that i saw is the founders actually have a real property background so they've picked an area of the united kingdom where they already ran a series of rental incomes and rental properties they know that market really really well so i was like okay there's founder market fit here these are people who've operated five or six different businesses in the past they know property, they know that space. So they're essentially giving back the house appreciation to renters in return for a flat fee. But at the same time, you know, like if the renter defaults, they take the house appreciation and try and sell it. Mm, so mm-hmm. I like the model. I think this is very, very consumer centric. And perhaps I'm completely missing it and it's completely mad, but I hadn't seen anybody quite do it that way before. Like the upfront fee is something that as a renter, you're quite used to having to do. You have to stick down a deposit to make rent. Why wouldn't you stick down a deposit to be in a place that you could end up owning in three years time? Yeah, no, absolutely. I like it. It's very consumer friendly to your point. And I do think that like generally speaking, and I've seen a few different companies kind of operating in the space, but like as a global premise, the idea that there's going to be a great and growing number of people who are renting but want to own, like that's a good proposition to start with, right? Because I think I'm guessing this is true in the UK as it is in the US, like housing is insane. We're not building enough housing. People have a really hard time, um, you know, getting into affordable housing, figuring out a way to buy. I'm doing this podcast from my brother's house, which he actually rents in Bozeman, Montana, and he's a public school teacher and cannot afford to buy it or another house right now. And so I think that like as a market, that's a great one to serve. I do think to your point, the thing you said at the end that really like sort of downshifted this idea for me, and I was like, oh, that's actually really interesting is their experience in the market doing real estate, right? Because the thing that like I buying, I think got wrong. If you look at like Zillow or some of these other ones where they just absolutely got, you know, hammered doing this I buying thing in all of these different markets is they were strictly doing that with like an algorithm, right? And so they would sort of use all of their data to figure out like, this is a market that we want to buy houses in. Oh, this house is undervalued. Let's buy it. Let's buy this one. We'll flip them, blah, blah, blah. And it just turns out that like, real estate is a tricky business to do that in, right? Like you just, there are nuances. And I think anyone who's bought and sold homes just personally, and I've been through that a couple of times and it's hard, like you get a real appreciation for the nuances of whatever market you're in, right? Like I remember when I I sold my last house, the appraiser who was appraising it and seemed to have a vendetta against appraising it at its proper value, picked a house that was (laughs) like, it was only like three blocks away from where we were. 
but it was three blocks in the wrong direction, right? And so, like, I, I've lived in this town my whole life. I know sort of the different dynamics of, like, the neighborhoods and stuff. And he went three blocks in the wrong direction. And the value in that particular neighborhood is indeed lower than the value of houses in my neighborhood. But that's, like, a very subtle distinction that doesn't show up on maps and probably doesn't show up in, you know, buying data. And so I do think the we're experienced at doing this. We know the nuances of real estate and property values specific to this market. And now we can take fintech and like the building blocks we have with fintech and the ability to assemble a platform that does this. We can marry our knowledge of this market with those tools to build an experience for these customers. So it kind of, in a way, links back to to clear and what we were just talking about in that I guess I don't know if this is a venture-sized business that can scale up infinitely, because I do think that knowledge of the market is a pretty key ingredient to this. But I don't know. I mean, I maybe this is the sort of meta point from this podcast today is like, I don't know that we only should be trying to praise and encourage venture scale businesses, right? Like maybe fintech could be a whole bunch of slightly less than return the fund winners, but that solve meaningful problems in all these different markets and have a good business model and generate profitability. Like this is an idea that should be workable. You could have a great business that is not the biggest business in the world. Yes. And I'm here for that. And maybe that would be, it's not the manifesting fintech thing, but let's manifest more just good businesses that are profitable, yes. crazy ideas yeah. that do really well for the founders mm -hmm. that you know everybody's happy with. I am absolutely here for that. As you were talking, though, I did think about there are a lot of people with real estate knowledge. Like that That's not a rare skill. No. In fact, it's quite common. So... Uh, I was always a fan of how um, Stitch Fix thought about scaling. They tell you a lot on their website about the process they went through to sort of start out with in-house designers and all of their early customers had designers, but then they had a whole manufacturing distribution issue. So they hired the person at Walmart that built Walmart's distribution to figure out the distribution side, but they were still hired. There were only so many designers in the world that could really like tailor your clothing. And then what they did is hired the guy that ran the algorithms on personalization for Netflix to figure out, well, actually, most people will fit into broad categories. So how do we figure that out? Mm -hmm. And they did. Mm -hmm. But then what they realized was the other service of what designers do is handle the human. And so you needed just really nice people that were really empathetic and good at handling humans. So where did they find them? They hired nurses, they hired former fire department people, people who'd gotten injured, just people who were really good at building human relationships. And that scaled a lot better because there's a lot more of those people. Mm -hmm. And then they gave them the system to kind of run people through. And, you know, they it was kind of helpful if they had an interest in uh, fashion and, and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they still tweak it around the edges. They would train them, et cetera, et cetera. This kind of strikes me like that. Like, if you were to go really wild with this, I think you could scale it, but I think you'd need to be almost thinking like a master planner in terms of, all right, how do I learn these lessons of how um, non-obvious businesses became multi-billion dollar market cap businesses? Like, that that shouldn't work, and yet it does. Mm -hmm. That would be my, like, Hail Mary for this. But to your point, it doesn't need to be a Hail Mary. Well, so here's another way of thinking about that, because I think you're right. Like, how can you scale this while retaining the things about it that make it work and make it unique? Could you franchise this? 
Should we have more franchises in fintech? So here's like a, a premise for you. But like, to your point, lots of people know real estate, but their knowledge is always specialized to whatever market they're in. Could you mm-hmm. take this platform and the concept and the technology and then basically just bring on more franchise owners that are real estate experts in whatever markets they're in, they don't have the expertise to build this platform and build this customer experience, but they can bring that model to new markets, let it get tailored to that market. Maybe it looks a little bit different in that market, but like, I wonder if there's a venture scale franchise business hiding in this, and this is like the proof of concept for that larger thing. Because I do think real estate knowledge is hard to globalize, but if you could put it in all the places where it's already specialized, that might work. Is it Beast Burger for fintech? That's the question. Mr. Beast Burger for fintech. That is a threat to pull on. I think so too. But we'll save that for a future conversation. Okay. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Just don't, no one uh, steal that for like a newsletter because Simon and I definitely collectively have digs on that one. Um, Okay. So so, um, I will do my last company and I'm sticking with the letter C. So mine is a company called Capitalize. And I noticed them a couple of years ago. Um, I think they sort of popped onto my radar in like 2021. And they are a 401k rollover service. So the problem they're trying to solve, which is a problem I personally have experienced and is, I think, a massive problem in the market is that when you leave your job that provides a employer-sponsored retirement account, you typically don't pick the company that your retirement account is held at, right? It's just, oh, you know, I'm working at this company and their 401k is at Fidelity. So now I have a Fidelity account and I'm contributing money to it every month or every two weeks. Uh, My employer is matching that and I'm building up a nice little retirement nest egg. However, I've just changed jobs. That is a very stressful thing to do. I'm thinking about a whole bunch of different things. I'm like basically moving a large portion of my life. And one thing that I forgot to do is roll over my 401k, which is not my old employers. It's mine. It's my money. I forgot to roll that over to my new 401k account or to some master 401k account. And it turns out that collectively, this is something that happens a lot. Um, According to estimates, there's something like $1.3 trillion that's been left behind in these sort of abandoned 401k accounts by employees who've switched jobs. And that's really bad, right? That The only companies that are benefiting from that status quo are the ones that are sort of hanging on to that uh, sort of assets under management in whatever uh, sort of uh, accounts those have been abandoned. And everyone else is losing there. The employee is losing. The new employer who's trying to sort of <laughs> retain a happy employee, they're not happy about that. Even the old employer, they don't benefit by hanging on to that money. It's not their money. And so I think this is a really interesting problem to solve. And basically, the way that Capitalize works is you as an employee, as a consumer, basically tell them, hey, here's where my old 401k is. And you don't need to have a ton of details about the account. You don't even necessarily need to be able to remember what your login to the account is, or even if you ever set up a login originally, you just tell them, here's where the account was. Uh, You give them kind of your best guess on the details of that. And they basically go and find it and automate the process of rolling it over. And when I say automate, they do have, it appears, you know, an ability through kind of open banking and integrations to have 
you look up your provider, log in if you can, sort of automate that process. But they also have a large staff of like human customer service agents who also will sort of do whatever manual work is necessary to get 100% of the job done and to actually roll the accounts over. The service is free. And the way that they make money is in a sort of nerd wallet credit karma fashion. If you are rolling over that money and you need to find a new uh, account in order to roll the money into and you don't have one of those already, they will recommend accounts. And you don't have to use them, but if you do use them, then they get paid a commission fee for uh, helping you open up that new account. And they have sort of uh, rigorous guidelines that they follow in terms of not you know, charging you more money for picking their provider or anything like that. So it's a fairly uh, well-established model. And I don't know, I mean, I think this maybe fits into our broader theme, Simon, of this is a product that absolutely needs to exist, that solves a big problem, I do have questions about, as we've been talking about, like, is this a venture scale business? Where do they go from here? How do they expand off of this? Is this just an interesting wedge, more of a feature than a whole business? But the feature is killer. And I really like it. And I like the way that they focus on solving 100% of the problem, even if that means combining technology with human beings who can also assist in the more sort of complex or manual pieces of it. Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons why this is a great thing. First reason is compounding. Like your the magic of compounding is one of the hidden secrets of life. It's the eighth wonder of the world, according to Albert Einstein, right? It really is. It's the biggest secret of the world. It's what makes Warren Buffett who he is. Mm -hmm. Like he's just been in the market for a long time right. since he was eleven years old and he's in his mid nineties. Mm -hmm. Like it compounding. Yep and continually investing that amount and all of that money sitting together creates this rocket ship almost this like uh this j-curve type approach to how much money appears to have and that is that does not work if the money is not all in the same place. Why? Because you're getting little fees clipped off the top everywhere. And so that's hurting and harming your compounding, which sounds like Oh, yeah, but it's only a tiny little fee. Yeah, guess what? That adds up over time. Uh, there was an analysis a friend of mine who did who worked in the UK pensions industry that said a 1% difference in account management fees over the 30-year life of your 401k can make the difference between half a million and a million dollars of retirement. Like, it is. That's a 1% fee difference. And, like, you two guys with kids in the um, <laughs> approaching middle age yeah. talking about pensions like this is the rock and roll stuff That's right. but this is why people don't have good health care in retirement this is why people don't have good outcomes this is this is why people are struggling to frankly heat themselves in the united kingdom right now and, and relying this is why we have a, a social security issue is because people don't understand this stuff and they don't realize and i think sometimes just the schlep of trying to put all this together. Yeah. Like the friction created by the traditional providers is the barrier to consolidating it all. Now, when I was listening to it, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, it's Pension B. Mm -hmm. So in the United Kingdom, we have a unicorn fintech that is publicly listed called Pension B. And they do almost exactly the same. So they will, you can give them like a whiff a clue, a Sherlock Holmes-like <laughs> clue mm -hmm. of where your pension might have been at one point, and they will hunt that thing down. They will get it, and they will make it yours. And then what they'll do is they'll combine it all together into a Pension B account. But then the Pension B account 
they are a provider of 401ks, the equivalent in the United Kingdom, a self-directed pension, a SIP. And then they give you a bunch of funds that you can invest it into. And it's a really simplified, great UI problem, high fees. So now what you're talking about is an entirely different thing. This isn't aggregate all of your pensions into one provider and we will then provide you the fund. This is just aggregate it wherever the heck you want and we'll hold on to some of the money some of the time. It made me wonder, right, are they going to do the Node Wallet thing where they end up introducing fees? They try and launch more from it. I think the Node Wallet example is kind of an interesting one to, to pull on. So, yeah, interesting thoughts. I like this a lot. It's uh, There's a lot of money to be made in doing this right. I totally agree, right? I mean, I think that one of the best changes we made in the U.S. in the last 30 years of personal finance was streamlining the process of 401k contributions, right? So we made some tweaks to the rules and like the opt-outs and opt-ins. And we've done a really good job, actually, of getting more people to save for retirement through these employee-sponsored 401k programs, right? I mean, that's like one of the great financial services accomplishments, uh, at least in the US of the last, you know, uh, half century, really. And I think the thing that they've sort of honed in on, and to your point, right, like when you separate all of these pots of money, that's just not good, right? You're getting fees clipped onto each one of them. You're just forgetting about them entirely. Like it's not like, you know, the longer time passes, you know, 30 years after you left a job, you go, wait, there was a, a, a pot of money that I saved, you know, back when I was like, I'll give myself as a perfect example. When I started saving for retirement, I actually started when I was still in school working for a company and I had no expenses whatsoever. And so I put like a huge amount of money, relatively speaking, out of my paycheck, which was small into um, a retirement account. And I actually got a real great head start on compounding that. But like, you leave that job and it's not like the more time passes, you're like, oh, I got to go back and like roll that over. Like the longer the delay for saving these pots of money and bringing them forward, the more it is like Sherlock where you're like, well, it was this company and I can't remember the name, but it was kind of like, like, I mean, it gets really hard to hunt these things down the longer that it goes. And so I love the idea of making this like a standardized feature, right? And I kind of wonder if maybe another sort of future for this and, um, you know, Capitalize raised money from Canopy Ventures uh, in the US mm. here in 2021. And Canopy is a VC firm whose LPs are all banks and financial institutions. I kind of wonder if like the future of this product is like an embedded service right everywhere, right? Where it's like, hey, um, you know, if you're a bank and you want to offer sort of a services to businesses, maybe a way to sort of build that out would be to say, we can offer more services and like things wrapped around our business banking products that include making your employees more financially healthy. And this can be like a feature that gets like tacked on to like a larger set of things. Like I wonder if the direct to consumer route may end up over time getting sort of overcome by a more of a B2B to C distribution model. Because I do think this is a feature that needs to sort of get built in everywhere. And I think that in some ways, the specialization that they're building, like sounds like what Pension B has done in the UK is we're really good at Sherlocking this whole process. And, you know, if there's this like little bank that's, you know, like I have a, a 401k account that I still need to roll over where I talk to the bank and they're like, here's the form that you have to fill out and then just fax it to us. And it's like this bank in Iowa and I still, I don't have a fax machine. And so I haven't gotten around to doing that yet. But like, if they can specialize in making that process more efficient, 
then maybe it's just a question of how you scale it and like what distribution channels you go through. I love that thread of um, feature as a service. Mm -hmm. Uh, It made me think about all of those uh, subscription management things that yes. features that you're starting to see pop up everywhere and there's not api and then there's mina technologies and there's a few companies now that are actually sold uh, as certainly you know mina has to some big banks they're using you can find in a big old fashion bank app subscription management that looks and feels every bit as good as your favorite fintech app that does it really really well why because it's feature as a service it's a great infrastructure company and yeah maybe they have a future in that there's something to be said for that for sure yeah absolutely okay so now we're going to jump to manifesting fintech so as a reminder for the audience this is where simon and i project our wishes into the fintech ecosystem uh these are probably going to be relatively half-baked ideas there may be problems with them but things we want to see and um things we want to manifest so simon i'm going to let you go first i just want a wallet that can do everything and i love mainly this is like this is simon's like white whale thing like a wallet that can do everything (laughs) It's like so annoying. There are so many payment <laughs> types, so many cards, so many identity things. Mm-hmm. Like a physical wallet still is just, it can hold your driver's license yes. and your loyalty cards and it can hold anything you want. You can stick a button in there. Like I can stick a picture of a cat in there. I can stick anything I want in there and maybe even I could try and, I don't know, stick a hat in there. It might not fit, but there's, there's just no limitation to what it's capable of. Totally. And yet, digital wallets they're always so limited and everybody's trying to build their own closed loop ecosystem now it's the venmo wallet with the venmo button at checkout and i'm like ah Mm. do we need any more of this so i think where it's starting to go in the other direction uh is probably apple you know you can now put your driver's license into the apple wallet Mm. you can now start to put loyalty cards in there but of course apple is the master of vertical integration so as long as you pay the apple tax and everybody involved gets in there it'll eventually get there but it, it won't live up to its potential of what it could be unless the, they smarten up and do some sort of open ecosystem around it and kind of make that happen because wallets really are about identity yeah if i can have some way of brute forcing digital identity that's private and personally owned and related to the device then that unlocks the digital economy in a, in some just amazing amazing ways and when we hear the word wallet we think fintech thing maybe we think like crypto thing but ultimately they're all pointing at the same sort of idea which is it's not about an account anymore a bank account is just one way, va- one place value sits, and it's just one slice of what I am. And I think wallets are always like money things. Wallets are really how I manage my digital life. And I want to see more evolution towards that because there are too many payment types, too much going on. And you sort of have this a little bit in Asia Pacific, but actually, I think weirdly, the West has an opportunity to come back the other way and say, well, we're going to take a little bit more time. It's going to be complicated. We're going to get there, but we're gradually going to migrate all of that analog stuff into one single space. So I want a wallet that just works. It's going to take time, but there's not a lot that just works when I look at wallets. I love that. And the thing that you didn't mention, but I think is key to sort of the underlying concept, something I've been thinking about a lot is standards. Right. And so like standards are so unsexy and boring and take forever and are collaborative and are just like, well, you know, like it's not it's the opposite of building like a venture backed business as we've been talking about. But like if you think about a physical wallet, like 
if you really boil it down to like what it does and why it's sort of strangely powerful, even though it's simple, the standard of a wallet is you have to have a card that fits in these little slots. And we all know what the size of that card is. And there's a set number of slots in these different like designed wallets. But like as long as the thing you make could be an identity document, could be a payment card, could be a membership card, be whatever, it fits the standard of a thing that fits in that wallet. And we don't have the digital equivalent of that, right? And I think that to your point, the sort of great unseen battle that's happening that we probably don't talk about enough in fintech is... Apple and Google and these other companies that sort of grew up with this idea of like, we can dominate digital ecosystems by creating these closed, you know, walled gardens. That's the opposite of standards, right? And I was talking to someone who works in the web working groups that kind of sets all of the standards for the internet. W3C. Yeah, W3C. And they were saying that like, Google's a really interesting example of a company to work with because some parts of Google, like the Chrome team, for example, they're awesome about standards and working in open groups. And like, they're always trying to advance web 3C initiatives and just like trying to do all of these sort of things that are helpful for the broader ecosystem, but then also allow them to compete in their own sort of ways and trying to win. But then you run into other parts of Google that are trying to sort of replicate the Apple playbook. And they're like completely hostile to the idea of open standards. So I do, to your point about like identity as an example, I wonder if the way to start getting around this from a wallet perspective is let's just take all the different pieces that go into a wallet and try to advance the ball on building common standards that anyone can use for these different pieces. And maybe it starts with identity, maybe it starts somewhere else. But I think that that's the key to having this like wallet dream that we all want, because none of this stuff works together. And it doesn't work together not because it wasn't designed that way. It doesn't work together because it was intentionally designed to only work within whatever ecosystem, to your point. The story of Visa is an interesting one because D. Hawk faced into a similar situation with the Bank America card and all of the other cards where he realized that like, if you just made your stuff work together, then the rising tide would lift all of your businesses. And lo and behold, oh, it did. And it did in a big, big way. It paid off. And we've seen that technology companies can collaborate. Bluetooth is an example of that. It's not perfect. And everybody has a different version of it. Mm-hmm. And the real nerds like get so angry at Apple because they do this and this other device manufacturer, Samsung, doesn't do it right. And I could have slightly higher bit rate. But for most people, most of the time, it Bluetooth kind of works and USB kind of works and Thunderbolt here is neither here nor there. And even that's going <laughs> yep. open source. Yep. So you kind of see the standards development thing that is is absolutely necessary in wallets. And let's hope we start to see more of that. And maybe, I don't know, if there's any possibility any of those wallet builders is listening to this whatsoever, I'm manifesting it. Yes. I yes, want it to happen. Yes. Make my dream come true. You make a little boy very happy. <laughs> Let's keep going, all of you who are building in the space. Okay, I'm going to do mine real fast. This is one that I actually, I touched on a little bit in a piece I wrote recently where I was talking about like different versions of what bank accounts could look like. But I would really like it if we could build more consumer experiences at the payroll account level, right? So I wrote a piece a long time ago about payroll APIs and getting access to payroll data. And in it, I sort of sketched out a picture of a waterfall graphic that basically shows that like payroll accounts sit at the top of the financial services waterfall. Everything comes off of that, whether it's uh, money that you're saving for 
uh, health expenses, whether it's money you're putting directly into a retirement account, money that you're sort of portioning off from your payroll into a savings account before it even gets to your checking account, or the money that goes into your checking account. Oh, and by the way, that's also where allocations around tax uh, withholding happen, right? So everything happens at this payroll level. And We've made a lot of progress in fintech of um, trying to connect to these different payroll account systems to build programmatic access to them, to have consumer permission access to payroll accounts. So the plumbing is being built for all of this. However, a thing I am not seeing in the space that I would love is, can we build products that intentionally sit around or at the level of the payroll account. So what I mean by that is, imagine, for example, that you could, as a consumer, sort of manage your day-to-day expenses in your checking account and you know try to sort of make good financial decisions on a day-to-day basis. But every two weeks, right before you're about to get paid, God mode activates in your bank account. And suddenly you go from playing the sort of regular player game to playing the God mode game. And in this mode, you go all the way up to your payroll account and it says, okay, two weeks is up. Let's talk about how you're feeling about your allocation of money that you're putting in different places. Do you think you could maybe put a little bit more money towards retirement? Do you think you could shave a little bit more money off of your checking account into savings so that never even goes into your checking account and you're tempted to sort of spend it or not sort of use it in a productive way? Are you making the right like tax allocation decisions? You're actually on track to end up withholding more money than you're going to need, which essentially acts as a loan to the federal government that you don't need to be giving. Do you want to maybe change that? Like, all of these different decisions. And I would love to have like more intentionality built around that, right? Because again, going back to the 401k example, when you're starting a new job, there's all of these things you have to do. You're filling out paperwork, you're doing all of these different things. And one thing you do is you set up your payroll and they're like, okay, so what do you want to do? And you answer all of these questions, but you're kind of doing it like in a fog with a whole bunch of uncertainty and you just click a bunch of boxes. No one, and I don't know this empirically, but just my guess is, no one really goes back and thinks about those allocation decisions they made when they were starting a new job and setting up payroll ever again, right? You go through open enrollment for your benefits every year during open enrollment season, but you don't go back and mess around with your payroll allocations. Why not? Why is there no interface built at that level? To me, that's like a very unexplored problem space from like a user experience and customer experience standpoint. And again, we have the plumbing, we're building the technology to enable it. I'm just not seeing that user experience part get built yet. So that is what would make me happy. And I want to manifest that. I don't know what to add to that. That's incredible. I love there's the design of oversight, insight, foresight. And oversight is like, I'm day-to-day using, I'm just overseeing. And foresight is like, hey, something's coming up. Like, you should pay attention to this, like you should deal with it. Mm -hmm. Insight is like, this is like something to look at. This is useful data. You might want to change this. This is something interesting. And foresight is looking ahead. I love the idea of using, you're about to get paid as like the psychological carrot Mm -hmm. to make you think about how you allocate it. What I'm a big fan of behavioral psychology, that might be something worth pulling on. Again, the former product designer and builder in me from my um, venture building days mm-hmm. is like really excited by that. Nice one, Alex. Yeah, I think it would be good. I uh, I think that um, kind of reminds me in a weird way of the um, envelope method, but like sort of up-leveled a little bit, right? Where it's like, I'm putting money in all of these different envelopes to sort of manage my expenses. This is like the up-leveled payroll version of that. Like you're making these allocation decisions 
but like make them smarter and more intentionally and like give people more visibility and control over that. So yeah, I think there is, um, I think there's room to build there. So that will be my wish that I toss out into the fintech universe. And um, Mr. Taylor, thank you as always for joining. This has been so much fun. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I, I don't know. You're going to have to get me curious and <laughs> come up with some more fintech companies. We're going to have to manifest some stuff. Yeah, hopefully something happens in the fintech space, like new companies, you know, emerge from stealth. Or I, That never really happens. So we'll see if uh, see if we have anything to talk about maybe a month from now. But uh, listeners, uh, if you like this and want to see more of it, uh, bug Simon ceaselessly on Twitter and LinkedIn and tell him to, uh, to come back and join me next time. But um, until then, Simon, thanks so much. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.